0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm
1: HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler,
2: with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. This week, we're looking at the way labels shape our perspectives on food.
0: I know you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but is it acceptable to judge a wine by its label?
2: There are some labels that I'd say are so bad, they're good. As long as your paperwork's in good shape, you'll get a grass-fed label. Tune in to this week's Meat and 3 on Heritage Radio Network. That's Meet plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode of A Taste of the Past is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill encouraging you to eat healthfully and nutritionally. Visit bobsredmill.com to learn more about their products. And use the code TASTE25 for 25% off your order. and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And I'm sure that everyone has a picture in their mind or or certain thoughts um, and impressions about New Orleans. My guest today says that basically, for most of its life, New Orleans has been in ethnic, social, and cultural motion. And certainly we know from the French who claimed it as their own, and all the other influences that came in, the, the, um, the Haitian, the African-American, certainly French, Spanish, lots of different influences in the foods and, and food. Nobody celebrates food quite like New Orleans does. But there's one portion of that influence that seems to be largely missing, and that's the Sicilian influence. My guest today has done quite a study about the Sicilian immigrants in New Orleans. In fact, at one period of time, between know, the late 18, mid-1800s to the early 1900s, over 40,000 Sicilians arrived in the port of New Orleans. And that, that can't be forgotten, and that can't be ignored. And in fact, he has done some digging and found out a lot about the history. My guest today is Justin Nystrom. Justin has written a new book called Creole Italian, Sicilian Immigrants and the Shaping of New Orleans Food Culture. Justin is an associate professor of history at Loyola University in New Orleans, director of the Center for the Study of New Orleans, and he's the author of New Orleans After the Civil War. Race politics and a new birth of freedom. He's also the director of a documentary film, "This House of Memories." Welcome, Justin.
1: Great, thank you for having me on your show. Uh,
2: now, now you call the book Creole Italian, and we know Creole is is kind of a mixture. But let's start with that word Creole, as in what it means, particularly in New Orleans.
1: Yeah, Creole is is a term that. Um, has a lot of different definitions depending on where you are. Um, I often joke that we should call it Creole trademark in, <laughs> in New Orleans because it's so imbued with how we, we market the city to outsiders. But, you know, it starts, um, you know, and it changes over time. Uh, you know, the Creoles originally are the first, the first generation born here in the, in the Americas, much like Latin America, but over time it, it, got, it took on these Gallic and Spanish connotations um, and and over time, so like new people who were of Anglo descent weren't Creole, but Creole has become a really powerful cultural marker for everything that has to do with New Orleans, and and I I even have it in my title as a way of irony to to speak to
2: that. Yeah, it, well, it did. That's what caught my attention when uh, you know when the notice of the book came across my uh, my my desk, and it you know because we think also when we talk about food, there's always kind of it's a fuzzy identifier in terms of, of the food and the cuisine, but people yet call it Creole. And to, and to many, it just means sort of a mixture of many cultures.
1: Yeah, correct. I mean, if you were talking about Creole cuisine in, in uh, uh, Brazil, you would be talking about very different things than Creole cuisine in New Orleans, although there would be some elements in, in common. Um, but, but here, uh, Creole becomes this really powerful idea of what New Orleans is. And so you'll have people who, you know, are German immigrants or Italian immigrants coming here or, or African-Americans who didn't grow up with any, you know, cooking red beans and rice. And they come here and all of a sudden they adopt these Creole ways. Um, Creole is this, uh, I'll say that there's no greater cultural imperialist than Creoles in New Orleans.
2: It's <laughs> interesting. Yeah. Well, let's, Kind of go back and and talk about these different groups. You just mentioned German, and I noticed your house the the book that you an uh, earlier book that you wrote, House of Memories. That is house spelled in the German H A U S. So obviously you've done some some looking into the the German background as well, uh, which was sort of a new group to me in New Orleans. But tell us about the the formation of some of the, um, you know, the cultural foodways in New Orleans way back when, when it was first getting settled.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think one of the, really, the, one of the, and this ties into the discussion of Creole, one of the really misperceptions of New Orleans is how Creole it is. Um, you, you know, I know there'll be a lot of people, who say, well, of course New Orleans is Creole, but New Orleans is an immigrant city, and in a lot of ways it's a lot more like New York. Uh, than people realize, and you know, one of the, it, it, New Orleans is a southern city, but its historical trajectories are, in, particularly once you get to the 19th century, are, are more like one of the great urban centers in the north, um, where you have all these immigrants. Because it's really the only, the South's only real big immigrant port, and you know, you forget that in 1830, New Orleans was the nation's fourth largest city. So. Uh, you know, it's it's growing along the same way. So we think of Irish immigrants and German immigrants in New York and Boston and Philadelphia. I mean, that that just seems natural. But those mm-hmm. same people are coming to New Orleans. So, you know, early on you have French and and you have the German coast, which is across the river, and they're they're really more sort of Dutch-German, and, and they bring the accordion to Louisiana and things like that early on, you know, 1720, 1730, and, and even before the founding in New Orleans. But, you know, so we, we have things like, you know, French culinary traditions, a lot of African culinary traditions, because, of course, enslaved people start coming to New Orleans almost from the beginning. Um, Native American influences, kush-kush, um, uh, things like that. But we get very quickly into the 19th century, and lots of Americans are coming in here from places like Virginia, Uh, lots of immigrants. uh, The first wave of Irish immigrants comes to New Orleans in the 1790s fleeing the rebellion, the failed uh, 1798 rebellion in in Ireland, Um, and they come and really make a mark. So New Orleans is always this, it's a port city, it's a global port. You know, I like to think of it in the same breath as I think of places like Hong Kong or New York or Amsterdam. It's a place where a lot of cultures come together, and, of course, they bring their foods and other cultures with them.
2: Right, absolutely, uh, and that is, that is, and the food, you know, the food is such a way of, of, for all of us to know these different cultures and sort of put a, a mark, a lasting mark on a place. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you wrote how the, the different, all the different immigrants and... Uh, and <laughs> Like you said, leavened by significant Jewish contributions, you have the German, Irish, Sicilian, all kinds of Europeans, and as you just said earlier, gave it that real urban, that that urban feel, you know, like a northern urban uh, city. And it's it, and I, I think we always sort of feel that it's so kind of laid back, and yet it's you know it's it's a very uh, a city full of a lot of of, of changes at all times. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, the the geographer Pierce Lewis forty years ago wrote about, you know, this this we think of New Orleans as as being kind of really different, and and it's colored the way we write about New Orleans, and um, but but really, um, the city deserves a little bit more scrutiny as a, as a place that can tell us about about the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. You know, we we tend to write about New Orleans as this really different place, um, but New Orleans is actually a lot like the other really dynamic port cities elsewhere. And, and, you know, of course, port cities are wild towns. New Orleans is a dangerous town. Uh, Today it always has been uh, dangerous in terms of not just we're talking about crime or things like that, but but disease and and all these other things. And, and, um, you know, New Orleans is uh, laid back. You know, some people say it was a Caribbean city. Well, it's that also, you know. Uh, because it is hot here it 's still hot here here it is we 're talking today in mid october and it 's um, you know it 's probably going to be close to ninety degrees today we 're all waiting for it to end, um, and the heat is part of our culture. The fact that weeds grow over everything is part of the culture um, and and so yeah, uh, it does give that kind of laid back feel the languid heat uh, is not to be underestimated
2: yeah. so what sparked your interest in? Kind of uncovering this this lost contribution to the foodways, the Sicilians.
1: Yeah, you know, I I guess I've been I I first came to New Orleans uh, like almost twenty five years ago, and um, you know I lived a great portion of my life in the South, but my parents are Chicagoans, and my grandmother's parents were immigrants, and so. I understood an immigrant culture when i saw one i grew up in one and i got here and there was so much about new orleans that reminded me of chicago and particularly you know the italian uh influence now new orleans doesn't have like really super distinct um ethnic neighborhoods like you know like skokie in chicago Mm. or um, you know, Cicero or whatever. Uh, but it does have concentrations of these areas. It's It's got fraternal organizations. And, of course, then you see it in the food. Um, my adoptive uncle, I call him, uh, is of Sicilian descent. And, and you know, uh, we, we started talking a lot about this, and it really made me think, you know, hey, uh, there's a story here. Uh, about the same time I'd finished up my first book, and I was teaching at Ole Miss for a while uh, for a year in the Southern Studies uh, Department and they're also home to the Southern Foodways Alliance you know our friends right. John T. Edge up right. there and you know, if you've met John T. you know you can't uh, uh, meet him and not get just a little bit interested in writing about food and uh, and so I, I thought you know well, maybe it would be a really interesting thing to look through through the lens of food at immigration and um, you know, I'm not at all Italian, which is kind of funny, but but I saw so much Italian influence that I started to really dig into it. And, um, you know, I, I started out thinking I was going to write about the, the ubiquitous corner grocery here in New Orleans. If you've been to New Orleans, you know that if you drive around the neighborhoods, the architecture, there's this, there's this particular type of architecture where it's on a corner, it's, you know, a frame building, and it's got the the corner is sawed off at a 45-degree angle, and there's a there's an entrance, and there were, there are just dozens and dozens and dozens of these corner stores all over the city, and a lot of them were run by Italian immigrants, and I and I really thought that's what I was going to start writing about, um, but I couldn't really write about these people until I figured out where they came from, and that's where this voyage of discovery of Sicilian New Orleans began, and I and I began to realize the story was a lot more complicated hmm. than well, we'd first presumed.
2: And of course, uh, Sicily is a whole different other animal than Italy, which Sicilians will tell you. <laughs> so, it's, very
1: true. Yeah. And 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 New Orleans is uh, if when we're talking about Italians in New Orleans, we're talking over ninety percent from Sicily, uh, and and of course. You know, we've got talking a little bit about the lemon trade. I don't know when you want to talk about well, that, but, that, well that's, that's what I'm one saying. of the you, reasons why. You, yeah. You, yeah, yeah, you
2: jokingly certainly. said it all goes back to lemons.
1: <laughs> it, it really does. And, you know, when I was writing this, this book and I, I was reading all this horticultural literature about lemons, because, you know, you really want to understand uh, the timetables of citrus and everything like that. And my wife and I would be working. She works at home, and, and I would be reading something, and I would turn to her, and I would say, Did you know? And she would go. Let me guess. This is about lemons, and, you know, because lemons are really interesting, and and I had just no idea, you know. I'd read somewhere that you know citrus traders were the first Sicilians, but it was kind of a a passing remark. And the more I dug into it, the the story of of the Sicily lemon is this fascinating one, where you know at the beginning of the 19th century, particularly when the Napoleonic Wars are over, and it's safe to sail the ocean again. You have these these lemon groves in Sicily, you know, that have have been developed over time since really the the 10th century uh, with Muslim invaders, and you know, Sicily has this volcanic soil around Palermo, and uh, the um, you know, under the Islamic regime they build these aquifers under the city called Carons, mm-hmm. and they can irrigate these fields, which means that you know with lemons you can force them to bloom if you can control the water to them, right? So it doesn't rain a lot, but then you can water them at precise times, and so you have these multiple harvests in, of lemons. And, and the other thing is in the age of sail, lemons are the perfect commodity. You mm-hmm. know, There's not many fresh fruits that you can pick fresh and then expect to be on a boat for 100 days, and it could take 100 days to get from Palermo to New Orleans uh, and, and actually improve on the voyage. So, you could pick a lemon green and and wrap it very carefully, put it in boxes with with wood shavings and and send it away and So, if you're waiting four weeks at at Malta to catch a trade wind or you get blown off course and you're somewhere off the coast of Brazil, uh it's okay. you can still get there and sell your cargo and and so these um these Sicilian lemon traders are really not just in new orleans but new york and boston and philadelphia wherever we see sicilian populations in america this is why they come this is these are the first sicilians in the united states are these these citrus traders who hmm. are a seafaring people
2: well then in uh just after uh the end of the civil war of course there was uh a lot of there were a lot of jobs available by that were um that became available because of the freed slaves after slavery. And is this when we see a big wave of of Sicilian immigration?
1: Well, a technological leap has to happen first. You know, so these uh, lemon traders are, you know, sailing to to New Orleans. But one thing that I think always amazes people is when I say that as late as 1884, lemons are the, the third largest crop. Uh, commodity being imported into the port of New Orleans behind coffee and sugar, right? This is, in New Orleans, again, is, is one of the nation's major ports. And so the third largest commodity coming into the port as late as 1884 are, are lemons, and you forget how significant this trade is. Well, because it's such a profitable trade, those citrus um, merchants modernize and they buy steamships. Um, they invest heavily and um, these screw steamers, and it reduces the voyage from Palermo to New Orleans to 29 days on the dot. Wow. Now you can start bringing immigrants. can't really bring a lot of Sicilian immigrants until uh, you cut that voyage time down. And, of course, these steamships are much larger. And so t- three things kind of happen all at the same time. The citrus traders buy these, these modern, fast ships which also enables them to diversify into tropical fruit, which ultimately will be their main gig. Uh, But it also allows them to become labor agents. So these these citrus traders aren't just importing lemons. They're importing people. And, uh, yes, after slavery... um, the South is a very oppressive labor market. That's probably the understatement yeah. <laughs> of the of the century. And and of course there is a lot of unrest. And and um, so the the Louisiana sugar planters and and planters elsewhere are looking towards these sub Eastern European immigrants. You know, mostly Italians, but not just you know Slavs and and others. Um, you know, maybe they'll come and work on our plantations. For the kind of wages that we want to pay, and they'll be happy to do it. Um, and of course, they're wrong, <laughs> <laughs> primarily. They can't abuse the Italians like they're abusing their black labor. The Italians ultimately won't put up with it, um, and they leave. But for a while, lots of Italians are coming in uh, to harvest cane, and because steamships are so efficient, they're going back and forth to Sicily, single men. Are, are sailing to New Orleans in the fall with the citrus harvest, right? In the summer, they, they harvest the cane over the winter. If you've ever been to cane country, it sort of starts in November and runs through January. And then they sail back in the spring with their pay. Um, it has become that cheap uh, to get across the Atlantic that they can do that. But mm-hmm. ultimately, they start bringing their families and staying. Yeah. And uh, truck farming and working levee gangs and opening bars and groceries.
2: well, and you you talk about how it's you know an, an oppressed labor market. there there recently have come to light some stories too, about the Sicilian workers being treated, you know as slaves as well. And you know, right down to uh, you know abuse and lynchings and you know all kinds of uh, things that we've you know we've been discovering with between slavery and and indentured. Servitude, servitude of others. Uh, it's that they got into some trouble. Definitely, well, they did.
1: Um, you know, I always tread this lightly because I there, are, there are people there. There's an area of scholarship in the in the historical field called whiteness studies, and and it's not you know I mean the sort of the political things going on right now. This is older than that, and it was this idea of how immigrants become, if you will, culturally white, and. Um, I, I, I often find that this scholarship overstates things a little bit because I'll give you an example. Yes, there are lynching uh, um, events that, that ensnare Sicilians, and and they're awful. But, you know, in 1887 you have in, in Thibodeau, Louisiana, what's known as the Thibodeau Massacre, and you can imagine by that name, mm-hmm. it's when black sugarcane workers want to unionize, and the state calls in the, the National Guard and the militia and, you know, A couple hundred black laborers die in this episode. So,
2: no, there's no, there's absolutely no comparison. There's no, I didn't didn't mean to compare it to that, but you know,
1: but that's not to take away with the sort of privation that a lot of Sicilian immigrants face. Things are so bad in Sicily that they're willing to do an awful lot. And you know, the story of Sicilian migration, once you get past these earlier wealthy traders, is, is definitely one where you know, there's there's a lot of turmoil because of Italian unification. A lot of Sicilians are getting drafted into the army, which is never good. And then, of course, you have a couple of um, of uh, epidemics and uh, crop failures. You have a drought. You have uh, phylloxera, which, which damages the wine crop. Um, it's just one thing after another. And, of course, Sicily is a, is a corrupt place that oppresses its poor And taxes them into into dust, and so coming to America, even under really poor circumstances, is a step in the right direction.
2: Right. Well, we're going to talk more about the influence of this um, immigration, the Sicilian immigration, on on the foodways of New Orleans as it develops and as the years go on. But first, we're going to take a short break. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. We talk a lot about baking with seasonal fruits on this show. And it's fall now, and the seasonal fruit that I love to bake with are grapes. Oh, they're beautiful and big and juicy. And what better thing to make than a grape crostata? I just decided to make a grape crostata with hazelnut flour. Hazelnut flour gives it a little bit of a nutty flavor. And what I did was make a shortbread crust rather than a pasta frolla. And a shortbread crust has a little more butter in it, and a little bit of sugar, and it's got all-purpose flour as well as hazelnut flour. It's a terrific crust that kind of adds to just grapes in the center. You can brush the crust with a little bit of orange marmalade as a base, and then put the grapes in, slice them in half first, and then bake it for about 35 minutes at 350 or until that crust starts to turn brown. And believe me, it's a good fall treat. And you can get all these products, the flours, hazelnut flour and all-purpose flour, at bobsredmill.com. And don't forget to use Taste 25 for 25% off your order. Okay, we're back, and I'm speaking with Justin Nystrom, and we're talking about the Sicilian past in New Orleans and the influence on the food ways and culture of New Orleans. His new book is called Creole Italian. Sicilian immigrants and the shaping of New Orleans food culture, and Justin, um, as you say, New Orleans uh, is really a ghost of the city's Sicilian past. But uh, sort obviously, we recognize the Sicilian influence, perhaps as you mentioned earlier, as being Italian, the Italian influence, and we think about well, sure, there's a lot of you know, it's there, it's evident. The muffaletto is a is a you know sandwich, is something that everybody goes to. They go, as you mentioned, the groceries. You go to Central Grocery today and make sure you pick up your, you know, your famed Mufaletta. Uh But that's that—that's only a small portion of what was going on there. How did they then move into more of the, let's say, the the food influences? What were what were their contributions?
1: Well, you know, today the restaurant business is—if you walk into a restaurant kitchen, who are you going to see? You're going to see immigrants. You know. And Italians, uh, Sicilians, I should clarify, arrive in New Orleans about the time the restaurant first appears in American cities, you know, the 1830s. Right. You know, you think about Delmonico and New York. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the other thing that's really, really important in the 19th century is oysters. One cannot overstate how big oysters are in the 19th century. Right. And And so these, Stasi, this little island north of Sicily, about 60 kilometers north, I think it's like five square mile island. You have all these Stasi also, in, and also People from Palermo coming to New Orleans, and they start opening oyster saloons and uh these are the you know the forerunner of the restaurant they they're in catering and of course, we think about catering and carryouts as kind of a modern idea, but if you think about cooking in the nineteenth century when it means building a fire and it means no running water and all these other things, carryouts all of a sudden begin to make a lot of sense and you you realize that actually a lot of places where single men live don't have any kitchens, Mm -hmm. right? An apartment in the 19th century often didn't have anywhere to cook food. So um, these Sicilians start really getting into the carryout. They become the renowned caterers of New Orleans. They're cooking all these oysters, turtle soup, lots of wild game dishes, of course. In the 19th century, you have a lot more wild game. And they start founding restaurants. uh, and, And they start serving food and advertising it that they're serving it in the New York style. It's really the Sicilians who are bringing a lot of restaurant culture, the very first restaurants, to New Orleans. Now, they're not cooking Italian food. They're not cooking anything from their homeland. They're cooking uh, Creole food, as we understand it, particularly stuff having to do with the landscape. So Pompano, uh, oysters. I'm, I'm getting hungry just talking <laughs> about this. Um, and, and so some, some names that visitors to New Orleans would recognize today are like Commander's Palace. Uh Commander's Palace was founded by a fellow by the name of Emil Camarda. He changed his name to Commander. Uh, these wealthier merchants tended to Americanize their names a little bit more. Uh and he finds it founds it in uh the eighteen eighties as uh Commander's Palace uh restaurant and saloon. And it's an oyster saloon. And and um ultimately of course today it's it's uh uh really one of the nation's best restaurants. Um and, and so The the Sicilians become very involved in in, um, the restaurant business, but they also start manufacturing food as well.
2: Well, manufacturing in particular um, dried pasta, right?
1: Yes, the pasta revolution. So, you know, before, say, 1880, not a lot of Americans are eating pasta. Um, You know, they're vermicelli noodles and, and so forth, and you'd find them on Tableau Hope menus but not in the way that we understand pasta today. And I mean, pasta is so central to the American diet today, it's kind of hard to imagine a time before it. Um, But that really emerges when you start to see all these Sicilian immigrants coming, not just to New Orleans, but all the other major uh, metropolitan places where we find large Italian populations. So there's a tariff in the 1890s, the Dingley Tariff Act. You know, historians, people start rolling their eyes, oh, God, no, he's going to talk about a tariff. But tariffs have a way of shaping the way we behave, the way economies behave, and and we react to them. And what this tariff was was a very protectionist tariff, made all kinds of imported goods, very expensive, including pasta, right? You know, so this was a spurt of American manufacturing, and one of the side effects is that with this local market of Italians... We see a boom in local pasta production in the 1890s, and it doesn't take long before New Orleans is the hub of pasta production in the region.
2: Hmm. Interesting.
1: So, but 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 it, you know, so like Italian restaurants. If you come to New Orleans, and, and a lot of people come to New Orleans, and they visit the French Market, which of course is very Sicilian by this point. By 1900, the French Quarter itself is very Sicilian, particularly parts closest to the river. This is where the fruit cargos are being unloaded. Sicilian laborers work in this neighborhood. Decatur Street, which is the street that fronts the river. You know, today, if you come to New Orleans, you see Waldenburg Park. Maybe you come for French Quarter Fest. You come Mm -hmm. listen to music. And Central Grocery is an outlier. But a century, uh, 120, 130 years ago, Central Grocery would have been just one of many wholesale food producers, and and Decatur Street was really the drive wheel for the entire regional food system, really extending up the Illinois Central to Chicago. Um, it was a, a f- transactional wholesale food hub, you know, very industrial, not touristy at all, um, and, and, a, and a working place dominated by Sicilians, and it's along Decatur Street, where we begin to see the first what you and I would recognize as an Italian restaurant open uh, in around 1900. And they're serving what they advertise as the real Italian spaghetti. Uh, and other dishes like uh, Brucioli, Bruscioli, or Bracioli, or Braccholoni, <laughs> as the mob boss Carlos Marcello used to call it, and and uh, you know which is the veal pocket with the egg in it wrapped, and it's it's, it's delicious, but it takes forever to produce, and, and so only a few places serve it nowadays.
2: Huh. Um, well, I mean, you even enter, uh, included a story about uh, Louis Prima in his song. Please no squeeze a da banana because of that yeah, 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 you know,
1: you know, Louis, I'm a big Prima fan. And, and of course, um, you know, Louis Prima is a New Orleanian. And, you know, one of the ironies of the, the no squeeze of the banana is we, we associate, you know, I, I, did, I introduced this to talk about, you know, how do we get to bananas? Because, you know, uh, bananas aren't Italian. They're, they're Caribbean. And, and how is it that Italians are associated with uh, tropical fruit? particularly the banana, the peddlers, and and it has a lot to do with, of course, the lemon merchants uh, diversifying into tropical fruit and, of course, ultimately founding these big corporations in New Orleans like United Fruit or Standard Fruit, which today is, uh, I believe, Dole. Uh, Dole Foods is the descendant of that. Uh, Progresso Foods, this is uh, another company that, I mean, I think today uh, Progresso Food is owned by Kraft. Um uh, but, but it had its start on Charter Street in the French quarter, uh you know you know canning all kinds of stuff, uh sure clean bleach was made in a little uh, row house on on Charter Street in the 1920s. It's it, the quarter was very industrial, luxury pasta, you know, if you go into the grocery store and you, you see on their label a New Orleans tradition since 1914. Well, you know, it's owned by Conagra today and it's made in St. Louis, but <laughs> but um you know, this is a time when there is a lot of really um important ferment in the what to Ultimately, we would become major American food corporations.
2: There were um, some cultural mythologies that actually materialized uh, in New Orleans. But, but around and, well, a little post-post that time, I wanted to mention first, because we're talking about their, their rest of the beginnings of the restaurants, how did these immigrants benefit from bro- prohibition during that time?
1: Oh, well, you know, New Orleans is a pretty wet town uh today it yeah. always has been right. and and so uh you know leading up to prohibition, there was uh you know a lot of fight in, in a lot of um southern states in particular, but not just southern states you know rural areas tend to be more dry uh more protestant uh more willing to support prohibition And New Orleans had rightfully so this reputation as, as sort of a sinful place, and New Orleans was always um one of the wettest cities during Prohibition, and if you know if you're in the restaurant business, even today, it's very hard to make money without a liquor license. Right. And 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 so um, you know you had a lot of Sicilians, and you know one of the ironies of Prohibition, of course, is is you know pasta becomes very mainstream very quickly by the time you get to 1919 when when Prohibition begins. And the reputation of the Sicilian immigrant as a hardworking, sober, industrious American uh, is really well on its way. Um, Ladies' columns are starting to print um, recipes for cooking spaghetti in the Italian style. And, And so, you know, mainstream America has really discovered Italian culture through food, and they like what they see, you know. And pasta also during World War One is seen as being very patriotic because there's this huge food shortage and pasta is very easy to cook. It's nutritious. It's delicious. What's not to like about it? Then along comes prohibition. And, and you know... Sicilians particularly in New Orleans are very heavily invested in the restaurant business and to continue in the restaurant business they get heavily involved in the liquor business.
2: <laughs> so you have an uh, oyster bar what are you going to wash it down with, right?
1: <laughs> precisely, but you know the the customers are demanding this and you know and this is really tied into I really take on some of this, you know, mafia mythology a little bit because mm-hmm. yeah, there's a there is a mafia certainly, but but To say that somebody is violating prohibition and selling alcohol somehow, and they happen to be Sicilian, somehow makes them a mafioso is ridiculous, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, in in that this was something lots of people engaged in to get by. But one of the side effects of this is is that a lot of guys also make a lot of money doing this, and um, they emerge from prohibition with a lot of cash. And today, if you go and start a restaurant, you know, you're probably not going to walk into a major bank and say, hey, you know, I've got this really great restaurant concept. I gonna, I would like to finance it. Often you have to find individual investors who really want to be in the restaurant business. Uh, this is true in the 1930s when Prohibition is over. Of course, it's still the Depression, but you have this money that's able to capitalize what we know today is the modern Bourbon Street. Um, these nightclubs, of course, Bourbon Street in the 1930s was a little classier than Bourbon Street is today. Right. But you that know these jazz clubs that you know, like the Prima Brothers and the Shim Sham Club, and all that. Um, La Lune, which was uh, the site for for many years, uh, was a club on Bourbon Street, which ultimately became the site of Pete Fountain's first club in the 1960s was there for about 35 years, and it was in the site of a grocery that was run by a bootlegger named Johnny Penzeca. You know, Johnny made a lot of money uh, selling booze during uh, Prohibition, was never arrested for it, and he got into real estate. He wasn't really what you would call a gangster, but he he was in the liquor business. And then when liquor became legal, he opened a legitimate club, and was a financier, he was a banker, and he invested in a lot of restaurants and a lot of other other operations in New Orleans. Um and was considered a pillar of the community.
2: Yeah. Well, so where you have liquor trade and and a lot of any business, a lot of business going on, you're going to have some crime, but I agree, you know, that that so much of the the mafia connection is, is mythologized really and and uh not to dwell on. But um you know, the, the, um, this island you mentioned before, Ustica, where all these Sicilians came. I mean, the, the Italian influence, again, we see it and call it Italian, but not knowing that it's really primarily from Sicily. But then Sicily was going through such rough times. I mean, they were dirt poor, no food. They were coming into everywhere, into to New York as well, and to um, their influences are, are felt tremendously why do you think there's such a gap in in the history? You say that there's a real gap in the history of of the Sicilian immigrants, including the scholarly well, there's work. There's a Why? big gap.
1: Yeah, I, I, I do. You know, one of the things I, you know, just kind of generally, I'm really happy about this book. I'm, I've been really gratified by the response that Italian-Americans have had to this book because, um, you know, there's a lot of really kind of sentimental history about Italian immigration. There's a lot of, you know... The food stuff, you know, where, you know, it looked at recipes and so forth. That's, you know, that's all good. There's some really solid scholarship about, you know, the migration of, there's some really good social history about the migration of poor Sicilians. But a lot, none of the histories written about Sicilian immigrants put them in the mainstream of the American narrative. Like that really show that, hey, you know, they're not just you know, this this group of people who, you know, when you say Sicilian, the first thing that pops into people's mind is mafia, you Mm -hmm. know, and and, the Sicilians make this really fundamental contribution to New Orleans food culture. And we don't see it in a lot of ways. And, And so there's a national story of not seeing the important contributions of Italians in the way that we should, but there's also a local story in New Orleans, and it has, goes back to when we started talking about Creole. Um, in New Orleans, uh, the historical fraternity, we do a few things really well. We write about the antebellum period, mm-hmm. right, because we've got all these antebellum homes, and we have home tours, and the French Quarter. The Carré Commission, which um, deals with the preservation and the maintenance of the French Quarter, has pretty strict guidelines, and they tend to want people to restore their homes to the antebellum period. Right. And there's this illusion of the antebellum period being a golden age for New Orleans because this was when New Orleans was, again, uh, at, on the eve of the Civil War, New Orleans was still the fifth lar- or sixth largest city in the nation. And, of course, its relative size to the rest of the nation you know, slowly slips through the 19th century. But that's because these northern cities are growing so much. It's not because New Orleans is actually shrinking. Um, and and it's a mythology, and so we don't look at the later part after the Civil War, and we look at the twentieth century when all kinds of really great things are going on in New Orleans. Uh, the only thing that we write about at this time, really credibly, is music, and that obviously, you know, jazz is uh, arguably New Orleans' greatest contribution to the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but but you know, there are lots of things that New Orleanians don't really know about there's not a single history of the port of new orleans for instance i mean we're the we're one of the world's largest ports and nobody's done a systemic history of the port we like to write about creoles we write to lay, uh, write about moonlight and magnolias we you know yeah that uh, whole anti right yeah the, the antebellum period duels is, at dawn yeah right, it's
2: more yeah. romantic it's so they were they're romanticizing their past. Yeah, and so we ignore,
1: you know, the important histories of, like, the Germans and the Irish and the Sicilians, but not only them, um, we ignore the many African-Americans. The single, probably most significant migration to New Orleans is rural African-Americans right. after the Civil War, leading all the way to the present day.
0: Right, mm-hmm.
1: um, And they're Protestant, tend to be Protestant, they're not Catholic, they're not Creole at all. <laughs> and they, they might come here and adopt Creole ways, but you know the people that uh, go to Second Street Baptist Church here in New Orleans. We don't really pay attention to their history, and yet Louis Armstrong, although he later he converts to he becomes Catholic, these are really Louis Armstrong's people. So, like the most important cultural figure that New Orleans produces, we don't actually pay attention to the historical process that brought him to New Orleans. Hmm. You know, and so there's a lot more that we can do, and and, and so I think in a lot of ways Creole has. Has kept us from paying attention to some other really important narratives um, that that we need to write about. And so I was very happy to go and, and take one of these narratives. To me, the Sicilian narrative is crucial for understanding yeah. the way our city works.
2: Well, um, and I'm so happy that you that as a piece of irony that you included that in the title, the Creole Italian. I think that that you know that really puts a, puts it in the right place. And and I I applaud your. Uh, your research and your work on this book really interesting, and and hope that it gains a lot of traction for you. And well, I appreciate it, and I thank you for your time and talking about it. There's so much more we could talk about. There's, uh, yes, I mean, this is very I got, true. <laughs> I got a little bogged down in reading a lot of these things, and and it's um, it's also a very readable book, I must say. Uh, and I love that you had a map of the French quarter, the lower French quarter of all the Italian establishments. I don't know what period that was, but. Um, yeah, helping people yeah.
1: connect with that past when right. they walk around the city. Right. Yeah. Sicilian
2: establishments, excuse me. Yes, <laughs> Right much different. Justin Nystrom, the book again is Creole Italian, Sicilian Immigrants and the Shaping of New Orleans Food Culture. And it really is a, uh, a documentation and a, and a piece of history that was largely missing, a study of, of history that was largely missing from, from our archives. And I thank you and I encourage you to take a look at it. And I thank you again for listening to A Taste of the Past.